It's all part of the plan, episode 22, and what a plan it is shaping up to be. My name is Mitch, talking all things DC on the big and little screens. Now, we will get back uh, to my journey through the old school DC TV at the end of the podcast, as we do each and every week. But uh, I'm back after a week off, and what I will say is that it was a, uh, a, a very unfortunately timed week off. Here I was driving away from the studio, knowing that I wasn't going to be part of the podcast for a couple of weeks, and lo and behold... We get some confirmation on some casting. Now, that's pretty much been part of the course the last couple of months. Some secondary, some uh, some lower characters being filled in here and there. No, no, no. We've actually got a very key name cast confirmed. Supergirl. We have a Supergirl, which is not new news to you guys or to myself. It's been the case for a couple of weeks now, but uh, I did, of course, want to touch on it. While we're talking DC on the big and little screen, this is going to be our big and little screen and multimedia of all sorts. Supergirl for the next couple of years, right? Millie? Alcock, the Aussie, getting the role, which she was down to the final three uh, about, what, six weeks ago. We got some kind of confirmation that these people were being the final ones considered, which, you know, unless it's coming from a reputable source like, I don't know, James Gunn himself, who seems to confirm things or deny things um, pretty frequently since he's become uh, the co-lead of DC Studios, this one didn't get confirmed like that. But, you know, even so, take what you get from those reports. Millie Alcock up against two other actresses, one of which is actually someone who's been voicing Supergirl, obviously, for the last couple of years. They all look very much the same. They've got that generic Supergirl look, average height, uh, uh, Caucasian and blonde hair. So we're going to get a very much traditional Supergirl-looking actress to play Supergirl in the DCU. But I didn't really have any feelings, especially on Millie Alcock, one way or another. I was pretty neutral. I, I mean, I liked her, I actually really liked her performance in House of the Dragon. I've seen very minimal taste of her in the Australian series Upright, which has had a couple of seasons now, although I don't know how much future she has left for that show now that she's going to become a uh, a pretty big character in a big franchise. But uh, it's a funny thing that the confirmation brings on because James Gunn comes out and says, yes, this one's accurate. Welcome to the DCU, Millie Alcock. And all of a sudden I started thinking about what her performance was really like in House of the Dragon. And even though I haven't read the comic that the movie will very much be based on, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. What I've known about that comic, and it is on the order now, that will be in my hands very shortly. It seems to be that House of the Dragon might be the perfect audition for the type of Kara Zor-El that we're going to get in Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. And just that the, the regal nature, how much she was able to carry in that show. And I mean, she's only a tiny little package, Millie Alcock. She's very short, and especially in that show, surrounded by these giant sets and these giant costumes and the, the practical nature, the, the settings and everything else that's going on, the other actors and performers around her that are in, wearing all of this, this armor and the costuming and the weaponry and all that sort of thing. Millie Alcock is this very tiny person in this great big world but how much power and presence that she carried throughout that show and I thought this is someone who is going to carry on this version of the character it's not going to be a Melissa Benoist version of Supergirl she's going to have a little bit of a tougher upbringing along the way now with it being in the new DCU where we're very much just getting thrown into the middle of the story we're not getting this Superman origin story he's been Superman for a little while we're going to get an older Batman Supergirl seemingly having already been on Earth and we get to see her there before we get to see her in her own solo movie, wherever that seems to have been set in the uh, DCU canon. So we're not going to get all that straight away, but we're going to get hints of what makes this character. And I think that something like House of the Dragon 
is going to serve as a uh, as a great jumping off point for what she can provide to the character. I know House of the Dragon seems like a fairly obvious choice to get all of our feelings about Millie Alcock from, considering it's definitely far and away the biggest thing she's ever done. But Gunn said as much on threads when he was talking about the casting after the announcement. And look, this one... I mean, take it with a grain of salt that this is actually true. What else is he going to say? But he did say, this is, I can only go away what he's typed out, that she was actually the first choice that he had for the role, saying how much he loved what she did in House of the Dragon, saying Millie was the first person I brought up with Peter Safran for the role well over a year ago when I had only read the comics. I was watching House of the Dragon and thought she might have the edge, grace and authenticity we needed for the DCU Supergirl. And now here we are, life is wild sometimes. And I dare say that more Australian audiences have seen Upright than those in America. But I would say for those of you who have only seen Millie Alcock in House of the Dragon, to actually source at least one episode of Upright just to see a different side of Millie Alcock's personality. I don't think those two characters could be much more different than what they are. The way that she carries herself and what that character, the history behind her where she knows she has to go in this massive journey. I mean, Millie Alcock's version, that that age of the character seems to have been left behind now with the way that House of the Dragon has to uh, move on without her. We might get some flashbacks here and there, but otherwise it's definitely taken its, uh, its life on beyond the age of her character. Seek out some upright just to compare the pair and sort of see the range and what she might be able to bring across. And I mean, it is going to be a different Supergirl, like I was saying, than what we have seen before. So we might find something some kind of hint into what she could do and and put together ourselves based on what we've seen from House of the Dragon, very big, very popular show, to something a little bit more niche, a little bit more Australian uh, in Upright. And a big thanks to uh, everyone far more talented on Photoshop out there than what I am. Uh, some great fan art has been put together featuring Millie Alcock in a Supergirl outfit. Uh, whether or not she's got her shorter hair, which she seems to carry around in her real life a little bit more, or the longer hair traditionally carried by Kara in the comics. And I guess as Melissa Benoist carried through her six season run of Supergirl as well. So regardless of uh, what her hair looks like, what the costume looks like, she really looks the part. It, I mean, it would probably look the case of any young woman with blonde hair uh, looking that way in a Supergirl outfit, but um, she looked the goods. Can't wait to see a picture of her and David Corrin sweat together. I mean, we seem to not be going to get any type of hint as to what those costumes look like or certainly no photo evidence of them until after they start production, which is only something of a month away. We've been getting told March for the longest time, and I was only thinking about the production around Superman Returns the other day. I don't know why, but I remember getting that first look of Brandon Routh in the costume. Now, 2005, when they were producing that film, or even as early as late 2004, who knows? It was a different online sphere, right? We didn't get as much sneak peeks into uh, into a production of a movie as what we are now. So there are a lot more lenses out there, a lot more people carrying cameras in their pockets, obviously. So uh, it's going to be a little bit harder to keep that sort of detail under wrap. Over on the Marvel side, I mean, you're looking at all the stuff coming out from the Daredevil TV series, the amount of stuff we are getting, photos of the co- up-close photos of the costume that we are getting, and not only of Daredevil, but of Kingpin as well, Bullseye and uh, Foggy and Karen rocking around with Matt Murdock, like whether it's costume stuff, action stuff, just walking down the street stuff. This stuff is going to happen when you're filming in an outdoor location. I get that. So hopefully we get a uh, shot like Brandon Routh where we got a beautiful full body shot, him in a very real background, debuting the suit and the 
probably way too small S on his chest before the trailer, before anything really got out for anyone else to ruin it. I hope that Gunn or the like or WB or the DC Studios, whoever it may be, someone official is the one that gives us our first look of the costume. I mean, again, over on the Marvel side, Deadpool gave us that with Deadpool and the Wolverine costume, the, the, the great yellow and blue Wolverine costume that Hugh Jackman's going to be wearing in that movie. We got to see first in an official picture before the leaks started to come out on Twitter mere days after that. So I'm glad that we got a first official high-resolution one there, just like we did with Brandon Routh as Superman, and hopefully we're going to get the same with David Corrin Sweat. And that's going to really start to set the tide and, and, and the temperature and the feelings and the expectations of the movie. There's so much ridiculous online discourse about this movie and whether or not you're on the positive side you know arguing with those in the negative there's just so much going on a picture is not going to solve that but at least if we get one picture of a guy that really does look a lot just like of of a younger henry cavill which is I mean, firing up the comments on its own. But get a guy that looks like the guy that was Superman in a Superman suit, whether or not you put him with the trunks or not, and what kind of blue the costume is, or how big the S is, whether there's an S in the back of the red cape. Give me David Corrin Sweat after a year in the gym in a fully-fledged Superman costume in high resolution with Lois as well, and then eventually down the line, give me one of Millie Alcock as Supergirl, and we're going to have something to get really excited about because this thing comes out in 17 months' time. So let's get ready. The other confirmation that got me excited uh, was not something on screen, but behind the screen with the music. Composer John Murphy will be putting the music together for Superman Legacy, and he's put together the last couple of projects that Gunn has worked on. So like with the visual effect crews, with a lot of the actors and uh, a bunch of other people behind the scenes as well, James Gunn is working with people that he's established a great working relationship with. This guy did the scores for The Suicide Squad, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, but then also TV features like Guardians of the Galaxy the holiday special and season one of Peacemaker. So Gunn's obviously got something good going on with this guy. Now, I couldn't really name you a, uh, a favorite moment from any of those scores in particular. I've only seen each of those things once, but I know that a lot of those more emotional scenes from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 definitely were helped in a big way by the score behind them. So if he likes that, if he likes John Murphy and the way that he works, I'm glad that he's coming on board. I did ask a question, of course, to James Gunn online a few months ago about whether or not... uh, Now, he didn't get back to me, of course, please. I'm just some random fan sending him a message. But the way that he was at a high frequency getting back to fans, I was kind of hoping that he would write back. But maybe it was something that he didn't know. But I did ask him, hey... And now it sounds like I was talking to him like I know him. But it was more to do with the fact that considering this is a DCU continuity that is completely brand new... With an asterisk, of course, some people are coming back reprising some of their old roles. You know what I'm talking about. It's a new continuity. Surely he's going to want to start fresh, right? Or because he's going to some really classical elements, you know, we've got someone like Millie Olcott, who is very much not Sasha Kaye, a very traditional looking Supergirl. We've got Jimmy Olsen, who looks like Jimmy Olsen. We've got Lois Lane, who looks like Lois Lane. And we've got a height difference between Superman and Lois Lane that is very traditional and kind of comic book accurate. There's a lot of, okay, that's very basic sort of stuff. In a lot of those cases, they seem like the best performers to do the job. But we seem to be going for some very traditional, old school, back-to-basics versions of a lot of these characters. I wanted to know, would he be tempted to use the John Williams Superman score? I know that Christopher Reeve's Superman was technically Brendan Routh's, but just in a sort of, you know, 
different variation after movie number two went off into its uh, into an altered continuity, but they used the Superman score. And I know Brian Singer was a massive fan for the Christopher Reeve movies, and he wanted to basically carbon copy that sort of stuff. Man of Steel comes along. It's a different thing. We're going to give it its own flavor. And it, it I love the score. Hans Zimmer stuff was amazing, but... I've seen clips where you put the Superman score, which is so iconic. It's not necessarily my favorite piece of music. It's not necessarily my favorite music that belongs to a character, but I almost feel that it is the most perfectly matched score to the character that it is representing. I love James Bond's music. I love the the Michael Keaton Batman. I love Superman's John Williams score, but I feel like you watch that, it feels anthemic. It feels godlike. It feels very uh, positive, right? It's cheerful. It's it's bright. And some clips that feature Henry Cavill's Superman, who I know plenty of people accuse, was not happy, was not bright, was very dark, blah, blah, blah. You put him in that suit. You put some of the action scenes that he was in with the John Williams score over top, it is incredible. And to make it a trifecta, and I don't necessarily mean to keep referring to Marvel, but I have asked Maddie over on our Marvel chats, how amazing would it be? And this is before we saw anything X-Men related in the MCU. How incredible would it be once the X-Men come into it if they decide to use the iconic X-Men theme from the 1990s cartoon? You know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to do the whole thing, but to have that carry over into live action, because for many, that is the X-Men music, right? Spider-Man, we had the, uh, the Tobey Maguire music. We have the Andrew Garfield music. Once we got Tom Holland, that was reworked from the classic Spider-Man, Spider-Man, right? So like they actually managed to work that into a new theme. Would James Gunn be tempted to bring back the John Williams tune just with a little bit more of a modern flavor? He didn't get back to me. And I did say, hey, are you going to use it? Do you think we're just going to wait? And I, I, th- I don't know. I thought at the time maybe he would have an answer for that that would not necessarily end the argument one way or another, but at least would give me something. I thought it was an interesting question. Maybe a thousand other people had already asked him and he'd avoided it or he'd answered it once. It doesn't matter. I'm keen to hear the music. It will be a shame if that music doesn't carry over in the same way that I love James Bond, no matter which James Bond. And I know from Sean Connery through to Pierce Brosnan, they were the same James Bond. They were the same character, essentially. And so they carried the same music. But then when they rebooted the franchise and rebooted the continuity with Daniel Craig, they still gave him the James Bond music. He had to earn it. He didn't get it until the end of his first movie, but they still gave him the music because that is the James Bond music. Even the Justice League, right? I mean, love or hate that movie and what it did and how it compares to Zack Snyder's cut. It was kind of pretty cool to see the uh, Ben Affleck stuff uh, underneath the Tim Burton, Danny Elfman, Batman tune. Because, I mean, I love, again, Hans Zimmer's work and James Newton Howard's work with Batman Begins and the music that Christian Bale's Batman was given. But that Tim Burton Batman score by Danny Elfman, that is something else. And again, it suited that particular world and that Gotham City and that gothic version of the character. It might not suit any other Batman, but it's pretty hard to go past. So... Okay, here while I am trying to sound neutral, I would love for the Superman theme to carry on. It would, I think, go a long way to bringing in uh, new audiences, old audiences, maybe not all the uh, Snyder Cut, Snyderverse fans, but uh, you use that traditional Superman music from 1978, which that music will be nearly 50 years old by the time that we bring this movie out. That music belongs to Superman. Give it to Superman in any way, shape you can. Or John Murphy comes up with something even greater. 
kind of like when uh, Hans Zimmer's you know came out. It was different. It wasn't as good as far as an iconic theme. I love it. The flight music, maybe one of my favorite pieces of film score ever. But John Williams Superman score is Superman music, so uh, it would be nice to see. All right, I'm recording this on Super Bowl Monday here in Australia. Uh, There's not much for the uh, DCU to promote uh, during the uh, Super Bowl spots, but uh, who knows if they'll want to jump on the coattails of everything else getting such online traction and want to throw out some clips there or some casting news or whatnot. Uh, We'll see what happens uh, between now and the next podcast. Let's go back to the DC TV and find out what happened in this week of DC TV at the time. Kicking it off with Batgirl Season 2, Episode 17, Kane Kate. Batwoman struggles as Black Mask continues to raise the stakes with Cersei as his henchwoman, Alice and Sophia cross paths once again. So I think after last week, I have to say that I was uh, wrong. Yes, Wallace Day would be a great Batwoman. I really do think she is, but damn it if she can't play a really good bad guy very, very well. The big reveal in this episode coming pretty early on that Kate Kane still very much Cersei Sionis, working alongside Daddy Dearest to infiltrate Team Bat, bring them down from the inside and steal some of the goodies from the Batcave. The key item in question being a dangerous plant of poison ivies to give to Sophia so that she can replicate the last remaining desert rose and replenish her island. Whew, that is a mouthful. It's, uh, look, it's pretty convoluted, this sort of bad guy plan that's going on. And did I say last week that the partnership between Sophia and Black Mask could make things convoluted? It doesn't matter. This is convoluted. Especially, again, when we've now got just one episode left of this season. And despite what I said last week about the options the show might take around writing out Wallace Day's Kate Kane, I did not think her going full sleeper agent was one of them. And come the end of it, she might just be killed off. I did not consider that option at all. It'd be one way to say goodbye to the Kate Kane character and one way to write Wallace Day out of the show. I just didn't think that would be where they went. I thought they would write Kate Kane off into something of a of a happyish ending. Let her to fully let go of her demons get away, move away, home and away style. Leave and never come back again despite the problems of those that you left behind. And just like Kate Kane showing a bit of a different side than what I expected, I actually thought they were going to show a different version of Agent Tavaroff as well. He He's out there, he's been a bit of a dick, one-dimensional uh, at times over the last couple of episodes, but there was that moment where he and his crew were being recruited by Black Mask, even revealing himself and his secret identity, and Tavaroff sort of pulling him aside and be like... I don't know, man. I don't think I'm into this. And I thought, wow, we're going to see this guy show some restraint, show some emotion, and uh, possibly turn the bad guy down. If he did that, he would be killed off. So, of course, he's not doing that, which means we got to exactly where we were going to go. We just took a uh, slightly longer journey to get there. And one great thing about this episode, we actually got a Batman-type scene in Batwoman. She's in the shadows, unseen, intimidation factor racked right up while she stalked some poor lackey of Black Mask and stole a computer belonging to him without him even seeing her, without the audience seeing her. It is the most Batman thing this show has done in nearly two full seasons. Why can't we get more of it? Anyway, here's Legends. Back to the finale, part two. The legends make a last-ditch effort to keep Sarah from being abducted, even knowing that it will alter the timeline. Sarah is shocked when Rory finds her on the mystery planet. Hey, look, they're doing the uh, the thing that they can do with a time machine where they go back to before something bad happened. 
and stop it. Or try to. B? Yes, it's me, your current friend, Berard. Okay. You're needed on the wave rider immediately. It's a time quake wave emergency. Well, that is the beauty of having a time machine. I can always just go back in time and fix it. Look, I shouldn't harp on about this. This show has already switched that rule or ability being a thing like three times this season. The consistency is actually in its inconsistency. Anyway. Now, obviously, the big takeaway from this episode is that Sarah is brought home. And it's funny how this season so far, seven episodes we're in, has split similarities between both Batwoman's opening episodes and Supergirl's. Supergirl had the main character separated from her team, and their main focus was to bring her home, while Batwoman's first eight episodes, I said multiple times in that run, felt like a mini-season between two full ones. This here feels like the show can now get back to work whatever that is. Like, it's let go of the middle ground between two full seasons. Of course, there is the nature that Sarah is now a human-alien hybrid, and that little pep talk that Rory gave her shouldn't be, and hopefully won't be, the end of that little storyline. Otherwise, what's the point of even throwing it in very last minute into this episode? And is the singing bad guy done? Bishop, he sure seemed to think so. So if they do bring him back in his galaxy-wide evil nefarious plan, what was with his pre-death reaction and the screams when he seemingly realised he was about to die. The excuse can't be, this is if they do it, can't be that it was just for the audience. No, 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 that doesn't fly. And you know what? Colour me surprised that I actually gave a shit about the engagement between Sarah and Ava. In the sense that the proposal was littered with cheesy dialogue and references to past events and... I guess it made sense for the show, but still somehow didn't feel like what would be said between those two, what really matters to them. I mean, okay, again, what they covered, it does matter between the two, but it still felt like it was there for the audience and fans of the show rather than between two characters in a in a truly intimate moment. Obviously, I'm looking for more than this show is giving me, but I don't know, it actually worked for me. Superman and Lois, Season 1, Episode 11. A brief reminiscence in between cataclysmic events, which is a longer title than the synopsis, which simply reads, Clark makes a startling discovery about Morgan Edge. And really, completely unfair with this episode. This was a great episode. I loved this episode. And to go off the back of last week's episode, I think we've gone back to back and probably the best one-two punch this show has had so far. Yes, only 11 episodes. It's been great so far. But uh, as far as a bang-bang, this is really working for me. Let's just go through some of what we saw based purely on my notes that I made as I was watching it. We see the creation of the fortress. We see Clark's first meeting with Jor-El. Clark's introduction as he got older to Metropolis, which reveals that the opening scene of the entire series was actually Superman's debut to the entire world. And the scene between he and Lois that we saw in that opening montage of the first episode was his very first meeting with her. The show actually has Lois and Clark doing some investigative reporting and not to do with super-powered bad guys, but about some actual crime stuff, making a real point that Lois wasn't that fascinated by Superman. She didn't care. She almost saw him not as a threat, but he was getting in the way of the real story, which is, I guess, kind of a nice reflection on some of the stuff going on in the real world. It's like, don't look at the shiny stuff that everyone's trying to make you pay attention to. There's some real shit going on underneath it. We see Lois and Clark falling in love 
with each other before Lois fell in love with Superman. She very much said, no, I'm actually in love with Clark before she'd even really met Superman, which is great. The show even allowed in the middle of an elevated action scene involving Superman for Lois to still be the hero chasing down that villain she'd been investigating the whole time. Superman, in his interview with Lois, reveals he knows every language, which I just love. They've, I think in this episode they made him a real man of the world in a way that a lot of iterations don't really like obviously the movies can only do so much and you get little snippets here and there about uh, him and his exploits outside of america lois and clark the newest ventures of superman from the 90s i mean it's been a hot minute since i've seen that show and there would have been touches here and there as well but i don't know there was just something about the flashes and the 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 timeline the coverage of time that this episode indicated before superman was a known thing or really known thing to lois in particular that made him seem like he was he was based in but he was around the world trying to help people. So, of course, he would know every language. And I just love the idea that he has studied it because he wanted to be able to communicate with everyone. Everyone is equal in Superman's eyes. And I I know I really felt that in this episode. And this iteration is just doing so much good for the character. Now, not having the conversation of his secrets revealed to Lois, I think I would have liked to have seen how this show would have handled that. You know, it's so based around the relationship and the partnership of its two leads. So I would have liked to have seen how the writers figured that these two iterations of the characters would have had that exchange. But come the end, I don't know, maybe it means just as much that we didn't and it's better left to our imagination or that that's not important. It is about Clark and Lois. Sure, the name of the show is Superman and Lois, but you know what I mean. It's more about their their partnership, the two of them as people, not necessarily him as a symbol. So we don't need to hear that conversation. The twist, it's all dream or it's a memory thing. Uh, yeah, okay. Like We knew that was going somewhere with Superman's mirages along the way. I didn't know whether we were supposed to take that as a bad guy, maybe the first super bad guy that uh, Superman had to, to fight along the way. That was his first indication. But then come the end, it's like, no, 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 that's Morgan Egg breaking through and this sort of mental barrier either slowly crumbling down or him slowly pulling it down himself to reveal himself to Clark. And for everything along the way, of course it makes sense that it would all come back to family in the sense that that's what this series has been about. And here we have Superman, our Superman, who we know even after 11 episodes. But it is our Superman, a true Superman, not some multiversal Superman that's going to have a touch of dark side. We know he would never go dark side. But he does go dark side somewhat to save his family, or at least says that he will come the end of the episode, that he will join Edge and sacrifice the entire world to save three people that mean more to him than anything else. We know that Superman, I mean, his humanity is his greatest weakness. He loves the world. He loves people in it. He loves his wife. He loves his children. It would be an absolute heartbreaker for him. And he's obviously going to figure that he can work all this out before the end, before he actually has to do some really bad shit. But does this mean that John Henry Irons is Superman, the one that he came here to kill our Superman in revenge of, also turned because of his family being threatened by their edge? Or did he not have one? And our Superman will be saved because he does. Look, there's still a couple of episodes left in this season, and now we have a whole new chapter about to open up. The Flash, Season 7, Episode 14, Rayo de Luz. When Ultraviolet returns to Central City, Allegra is determined to find her cousin and change her heart. Meanwhile, Joe finds evidence that Kristen Kramer may not be the good cop she appears to be. 
Look, here I was joking last podcast. This cast is getting so big that if they wanted to include everyone, too bad, you can't, you have to lose someone. But I didn't actually think that we would be losing The Flash from The Flash. Supergirl almost did it beyond a joke earlier in its final season, but I honestly didn't think this show would do it. And at least this isn't The Flash's final season. But losing both Barry and Iris because they're on a baby-making holiday? Okay. It's really to give Allegra her own episode. And to do so, you've got to tie in a villain that's personal to her, just reappearing because her cousin, Ultraviolet, showing back up like it read in the synopsis. Now, I I like the idea that Allegra wanted to handle things like Barry would. She wants less violence, more talk, bring the villain around, talk them down. But to do that, the show has to, I guess, take the simple route in introducing another bad guy, give him some history with the villain we thought we already had, and instead make her out to be some type of misunderstood victim who's acting more out of a reaction to her past rather rather than true motives. I just didn't care much about him, so I wasn't really tied to the ultraviolet story and just the back-and-forth nature of it being a good idea. No, ultraviolet's betraying them. No, she can be turned around. No, she can't. And it's like, I just... I don't know. I don't really care. Sue Dearborn's back. She's popping in and out, trying to sort of either be the antagonist of Allegra's wishes along the way or to help her out. And then at the end of this episode, for the second straight episode seems to tell everybody I'm sticking around and I'm like am I having deja vu did she not say the exact same thing at the end of last episode it doesn't matter Joe, like the synopsis said, seemed to be on a warpath with Kristen Kramer, confronted her over her past. He then starts to have questions over what he knows, whether it's real. She turns around. Oh, no, you've got it all misunderstood. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, then why are you acting the way that you have acted, considering it was all pointing in the direction that Joe seemed to be telling the audience it was? And now we've kind of reset and we've got Kristen Kramer and Joe teaming up to, oh, hang on. No, we've all been wrong. Actually, let's pull the mask off. There's another bad guy out that she's been chasing. It's not just that she is some kind of pseudo-villain for all metas and trying to bring them down. No, no, no. It's all about this other guy. Let's go after him. And I don't know, are we supposed to forget everything she's done so far? Behind the scenes, Caitlin herself, Danielle Panabaker, is the director of this episode. It's the, uh, actually the third episode she's directed so far. She ends up totaling five by the end of The Flash's run. And it's a bit of a shame for her. She wasn't given much, I think, with the script and the story and probably did as much as she could, especially operating on a female director, directing three key female characters along the way between Sue, between Allegra, and between Ultraviolet and those conflicting sort of personalities and the friendships and the relationships and, and the family versus found family and I'm sure she did everything she could. It just, it, uh, it wasn't much this episode. That'll do us for It's All Part of the Plan. This week we will be back with probably less to talk about on the DC front, movie and TV than we will on the Marvel front, considering they are showcasing at least one big thing with Deadpool at uh, Super Bowl spots. But let's hope, like I said, they do jump on the coattails of everything being a uh, really hot ticket item online and just drop some news, release a little clip or a trailer, a behind-the-scenes look of... I'll take anything at this stage. Give me the release date for Creature Commandos. I will take that. And whatever it is, we'll talk about it on the next podcast. Enjoy your DC. We'll see you then. Get into geek.